Part Four of The Highest Treason. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Highest Treason by Randall Garrett. Part Four The Traitor. Convincing the Karothai that he was in earnest was more difficult than McMain had at first supposed. He had done his best, and now, after nearly a year of captivity, Tallis had come to tell him that his offer had been accepted. General Tallis sat across from Colonel McMain, smoking his cigarette absently. "'Just why are they accepting my proposition?' McMain asked bluntly. "'Because they can afford to,' Tallis said with a smile. "'You will be watched, my sibling, by choice.' watched every moment for any sign of treason. Your flagship will be a small ten-man blaster boat, one of our own. You gave us one, we'll give you one. At the worst, we will come out even. At the best, your admittedly brilliant grasp of tactics and strategy will enable us to save thousands of Karothai lives, to say nothing of the immense savings in time and money. All I ask is a chance to prove my ability and my loyalty. You've already proven your ability. All of the strategy problems that you have been given over the past year were actual battles that had already been fought. In 87% of the cases, your strategy proved to be superior to our own. In most of the others, it was just as good. In only three cases was the estimate of your losses higher than the actual losses. Actually, we'd be fools to turn you down. We have everything to gain and nothing to lose. I felt the same way a year ago, said McMain. Even being watched all the time will allow me more freedom than I had on earth, if the Board of Strategy is willing to meet my terms. Tallis chuckled. They are. You'll be the best-paid officer in the entire fleet. None of the rest of us gets a tenth of what you'll be getting, as far as personal value is concerned. And yet it costs us practically nothing. You drive an attractive bargain, Sebastian. Is that the kind of pay you'd like to get, Tallis? McMain asked with a smile. Why not? You'll get your terms, full pay as a Karothai general, with retirement on full pay after the war is over. The pick of the most beautiful, by your standards, of the earthwomen we capture, a home on Karoth, built to your specifications and full citizenship, including the freedom to enter into any business relationship you wish. If you keep your promises... We can keep ours and still come out ahead. Good. When do we start? Now, said Tallis, rising from his chair. Put on your dress uniform and we'll go down to see the high commander. We've got to give you a set of general's insignia, my sibling by choice. Tallis waited while McMain donned the blue trousers and gold-trimmed red uniform of a Karothai officer. When he was through, McMain looked at himself in the mirror. There's one more thing, Tallis, he said thoughtfully. What's that? This hair. I think you better arrange to have it permanently removed according to your custom. I can't do anything about the color of my skin, but there's no point in my looking like one of your wild hillmen. You're very gracious, Tallis said, and very wise. Our officers will certainly come closer to feeling that you are one of us. I am one of you from this moment, McMain said. I never intend to see Earth again, except perhaps from space, 
when we fight the final battle of the war. That may be a hard battle, Tala said. Maybe, McMain said thoughtfully. On the other hand, if my overall strategy comes out the way I think it will, that battle may never be fought at all. I think that complete and total surrender will end the war before we ever get that close to Earth. I hope you're right, Tala said firmly. This war is costing far more than we had anticipated, in spite of the weakness of your, that is, of Earth. Well, McMain said with a slight grin, at least you've been able to capture enough Earth food to keep me eating well all this time. Tallis's grin was broad. You're right, we're not doing too badly at that. Now, let's go, the High Commander is waiting. McMain didn't realize until he walked into the big room that what he was facing was not just a discussion with a high officer, but what amounted to a court of inquiry. The high commander, a dome-headed, wrinkled, yellow-skinned, hard-eyed old Kurothai, was seated in the center of a long, high desk, flanked on either side by two lower-ranking generals who had the same deadly, hard look. Off to one side, almost like a jury in a jury box, sat twenty or so lesser officers, none of them ranking below the Kurothai equivalent of lieutenant colonel. As far as McMain could tell, none of the officers wore the insignia of fleet officers, the spaceship and comet that showed that the wearer was a fighting man. These were the men of the permanent headquarters staff, the military group that controlled not only the armed forces of Karoth, but the civil government as well. "'What's this?' McMain hissed in a whispered aside in English. "'Pair up, my brother,' Talas answered softly in the same tongue. "'All is well.' McMain had known long before he had ever heard of General Poland Talas that the hegemony of Karoth was governed by a military junta and that all Karothai were regarded as members of the armed forces. Technically, there were no civilians— they were legally members of the unorganized reserve and were under military law. He had known that Karothai society was, in its own way, as much a slave society as that of Earth, but it had the advantage over Earth in that the system did allow for advance by merit. If a man had the determination to get ahead and the ability to cut the throat, either literally or figuratively, of the man above him in rank, he could take his place. On a more strictly legal basis, it was possible for a common trooper to become an officer by going through the schools set up for that purpose, but in practice it took both pull and pressure to get into those schools. In theory, any citizen of the hegemony could become an officer, and any officer could become a member of the permanent headquarters staff. Actually, a much greater preference was given to the children of officers. Examinations were given periodically for the purpose of recruiting new members for the elite officers' corps, and any citizen could take the examination, once. But the tests were heavily weighted in favor of those who were already well-versed in matters military, including what might be called the inside jokes of the officers' corps. A common trooper had some chance of passing the examination. A civilian had a very minute chance. A non-commissioned officer had the best chance of passing the examination, but there were age limits, which usually kept NCOs from getting a commission. By the time a man became a non-commissioned officer, he was too old to be admitted to the officers' training schools. 
There were allowances made for extraordinary merit, which allowed common troopers or upper-grade NCOs to be commissioned in spite of the general rules, and an astute man could take advantage of those allowances. Ability could get a man up the ladder, but it had to be a particular kind of ability. During his sojourn as a guest of the Karothai, McMain had made a point of exploring the history of the race. He knew perfectly well that the histories he had read were doctored, twisted, and in general totally unreliable, insofar as presenting anything that would be called a history by an unbiased investigator. But, knowing this, McMain had been able to learn a great deal about the present society. Even if the history was worthless as such, it did tell something about the attitudes of a society that would make up such a history. And, too, he felt that in general the main events which had been catalogued actually occurred, the details had been blurred and the attitudes of the people had been misrepresented, but the skeleton was essentially factual. McMain felt that he knew what kind of philosophy had produced the mental attitudes of the court he now faced, and he felt he knew how to handle himself before them. Half a dozen paces in front of the great desk, the color of the floor tiling was different from that of the rest of the floor. Instead of a solid blue, it was a dead black. Tallis, who was slightly ahead of McMain, came to a halt as his toes touched the edge of the black area. Uh-oh. A balk line, McMain thought. He stopped sharply at the same point. Both of them just stood there for a full minute while they were carefully inspected by the members of the court. Then the high commander gestured with one hand, and the officer to his left leaned forward and said, Why is this one brought before us in the uniform of an officer, bare of any insignia of rank? It could only be a ritual question, McMain decided. They must know why he was there. I bring him as a candidate for admission to our in-group, Tallis replied formally, and ask the indulgence of your superiorities, therefore. And who are you to ask our indulgence? Tallis identified himself at length. Name, rank, serial number, military record, etc., etc., etc. By the time he had finished, McMain was beginning to think that the recitation would go on forever. The high commander had closed his eyes, and he looked as if he had gone to sleep. There was more formality. Through it all, McMain stood at rigid attention, flexing his calf muscles occasionally to keep the blood flowing in his legs. He had no desire to disgrace himself by passing out in front of the court. Finally, the Karothai officer stopped asking Tallis questions and looked at the high commander. McMain got the feeling that there was about to be a departure from the usual procedure. Without opening his eyes, the high commander said, in a brittle, rather harsh voice, these circumstances are unprecedented. Then he opened his eyes and looked directly at McMain. Never has an animal been proposed for such an honor. In times past, such a proposal would have been mockery of this court and this in-group, and a crime of such monstrous proportions as to merit excommunication. McMain knew what that meant. The word was used literally. The condemned one was cut off from all communication by having his sensory nerves surgically severed. Madness followed quickly. 
Psychosomatic death followed eventually, as the brain, cut off from any outside stimuli except those which could not be eliminated without death following instantly, finally became incapable of keeping the body alive. Without feedback, control was impossible, and the organism as a whole slowly deteriorated until death was inevitable. At first, the victim screamed and thrashed his limbs as the brain sent out message after message to the rest of the body, but since the brain had no way of knowing whether the messages had been received or acted upon, the victim soon went into a state comparable to that of catatonia and finally died. If it was not the ultimate in punishment, it was a damned close approach, McMain thought, and he felt that the word damned could be used in that sense without fear of exaggeration. However, the high commander went on gazing at the ceiling, circumstances change. It would once have been thought vile that a machine should be allowed to do the work of a skilled man, and the thought that a machine might do the work with more precision and greater rapidity would have been almost blasphemous. This case must be viewed in the same light. As we are replacing certain of our workers on our outer planets with earth animals simply because they are capable of doing the work more cheaply, so we must recognize that the same interests of economy govern in this case. A computing animal in that sense is in the same class as a computing machine. It would be folly to waste their abilities simply because they are not human. There also arises the question of command. It has been represented to this court by certain officers who have been active in investigating the candidate animal, that it would be as degrading to ask a human officer to take orders from an animal as it would be to ask him to take orders from a commoner of the unorganized reserve, if not more so. And I must admit there is on the surface of it some basis for this reasoning. But again, we must not let ourselves be misled. Does not a spaceship pilot, in a sense, take orders from the computer that gives him his orbits and courses? In fact, do not all computers give orders in one way or another to those who use them? Why, then, should we refuse to take orders from a computing animal? He paused and appeared to listen to the silence in the room before going on. Stand at ease until the High Commander looks at you again, Tallis said in a low aside. This was definitely the pause for adjusting to surprise. It seemed interminable, though it couldn't have been longer than a minute later that the High Commander dropped his gaze from the ceiling to McMain. When McMain snapped to attention again, the others in the room became suddenly silent. We feel, the hard-faced old Kurothai continued as if there had been no break, that in this case we are justified in employing the animal in question. However, we must make certain exceptions to our normal procedure. The candidate is not a machine, and therefore cannot be treated as a machine. Neither is it human, and therefore cannot be treated as human. Therefore, this is the judgment of the court of the in-group. The animal, having shown itself to be capable of behaving in some degree as befits an officer, including, as we have been informed, voluntarily conforming to our custom as regards superfluous hair, 
it shall henceforth be considered as having the same status as an untaught child or a barbarian in so far as social conventions are concerned and shall be entitled to the use of the human pronoun he further he shall be entitled to wear the uniform he now wears and the insignia of a general of the fleet he shall be entitled as far as personal contact goes to the privileges of that rank and shall be addressed as such he will be accorded the right of punishment of an officer of that rank in so far as disciplining his inferiors is concerned except that he must first secure the concurrence of his guardian officer as hereinafter provided he shall also be subject to punishment in the same way and for the same offenses as humans of his rank taking into account physiological differences except as hereinafter provided his reward for proper service the high commander listed the demands mcmaine had made are deemed fitting and shall be paid providing his duties in service are carried out as proposed obviously however certain restrictions must be made Colonel McMain, as he is entitled to be called, is employed solely as a strategy computer. His ability as such and his knowledge of the psychology of the earth animals are, as far as we are concerned at this moment, his only useful attributes. Therefore, his command is restricted to that function. He is empowered to act only through the other officers of the fleet as this court may appoint. He is not to command directly. Further, it is ordered that he shall have a guardian officer who shall accompany him at all times and shall be directly responsible for his actions. That officer shall be punished for any deliberate crime committed by the aforesaid General McMain as if he had himself committed the crime. Until such time as this court may appoint another officer for the purpose, General Poland Tallis, previously identified in these proceedings, is appointed as guardian officer. The high commander paused for a moment, then he said, Proceed with the investment of the insignia. End of part four.